Good afternoon and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. Our uh, May print issue will be coming out within the week. We're excited about that. Um, and uh, we're also excited to have another radio show uh, for you uh, today. My co host, uh, Amir Gagarian, is out. Um, uh, today, uh, so in, we have a bunch of a, a bunch of good segments in store for you. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about a historic breakthrough in Albany uh, with uh, renewable energy uh, legislation that uh, could put New York at the forefront of uh, green energy, renewable energy, all those good things. We're going to hear from someone who's been in the thick of that fight uh, for many years now. Uh, later in the show. We'll talk about one of the worst developments to come out of uh, the state budget uh, negotiations where so much else gets uh, uh, shoved into that. And that is uh, a rollback, a partial rollback on uh, um, uh, bail law reforms that were enacted only uh, four years ago. We're going to talk to uh, the independents, Ted Ham, our criminal justice correspondent about that. And we will also, in our third segment, uh, hear from uh, someone who's uh, running for district attorney in the Bronx uh, who wants to uh, uh, start rolling back the, the mass incarceration uh, machine as it functions uh, in that uh, uh, part of our city. We'll hear from her. Um, but first of all, we're going to start uh, with uh, some of the, the good news from Albany, which is that uh, uh, as a part of the state uh, budget deal that was worked out, uh, much of the uh, Build Public Renewables Act uh, was incorporated uh, into the budget deal. Uh, this uh, the, um, advocates are hailing this as a, a historic breakthrough and something that will really put New York at the at the forefront of renewable energy and uh, also being hailed as the largest piece of Green New Deal legislation uh, that's been passed uh, to date in our uh, country. And uh, joining us to talk about that is uh, Lee Zishi from Sane Energy. She's also a spokesperson for New York uh, Public Power and involved with uh, New York City uh, DSA's uh, uh, Eco-Socialist uh, Caucus. Uh, Lee, thank you for joining us today on WBAI Radio. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really glad to be here. Yeah, so, uh, so how are you feeling after years of... Uh, 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 working toward this uh, moment. Yeah, we're all, you know, incredibly thrilled. This is just a huge victory and it's been a long slog. You know, this started about four years ago that we've been fighting for this bill. And then obviously, you know, this, this is a pretty crazy budget season um, and trying to fight through a bill through the New York state budget, which is just such an opaque um, process to, you know, convey to people has been very tough, but we've, We've got it. We've got most of the Build Public Renewables Act, and after four years, the bill is passing. And it's yeah, it's it's so so very exciting. So uh, let's dive into it a little bit. What uh, are the parts of the legislation of this legislation that you're most excited about, and why is that? Yeah. So I mean, the very foundation of it is that you know this authority that already exists, the New York Power Authority, you know, was established under FDR was meant to serve the people of New York, has not been able to do that, has not been able to build 
renewable energy, solar, wind at a utility scale. And now NIPA can do that. And that's huge. Um, you know, we've fallen very far behind on our climate goals. And this will make sure that we can build renewables at a scale that will actually address the climate crisis and meet New York's um, state goals. Um, also, we fought very hard for some strong labor provisions in this bill. Um, you know, the way the whole budget process works is originally the governor kind of comes forward with her executive proposal. So she put um, you know, build public renewables on the negotiating table, but she introduced a, a very stripped down version of the bill that really weakened it. And one of the things that she took out was the very gold standard labor provisions of build public renewables. So, you know, we fought very hard. We've gotten a lot of union support over the last few years. Um, it's definitely one of the things that have helped us, you know, get this across the finish line. Um, and so we fought very hard and got those labor um, standards in the bill, which is a huge victory for, you know, working people across the state, especially in an industry that, you know, isn't very unionized. Unfortunately, we see a lot of um, renewable developers, um, private developers currently not using union labor. So that that is a huge win. Um, we also made sure that NYPA just wasn't allowed to build, that they were actually mandated to build. Um, you know, unfortunately, NYPA does not have the best leadership. Um, so we want to make sure that we um, that they actually are required to build and meet our climate goals. And the other thing that we won um, that was very um, important to us is, you know, the New York Power Authority does currently own some very dirty fracked gas power plants in New York City and Long Island. They're called peaker plants. They only turn on during the hottest days of the year. They're mostly located in black and brown communities, low income communities. And so we made sure that those would be shut down by 2030 and replaced with renewable energy because under the governor's version, they would be able to stay open another five more years. That would have been five more years of pollution. Um, so those are some of the things that we want. And yeah, as you said, you know, this really is the biggest Green New Deal legislation that, that's been passed um, in the country. So I think they're still um, debating the, the big ugly, as they call it, the budget bill that this is in. Um, but it's it's set to pass tonight. And that's just really, really incredible victory for, for the grassroots movement in New York. Right. I mean, you talk about the labor provisions. I, I recall seeing a, a one study um, about uh, uh, this legislation that claimed that it over time could create as many as 51,000 uh, union jobs. Is that correct? Yeah. And a lot of that is like just looking at to, you know, shutting down these dirty power plants that exist, um, replacing them with renewable energy, you know, depending on how much solar, if this really works well, which we think it will, it could even create more jobs than that. Um, and it was very important to us that those are union jobs, you know, the environmental movement has a whole, you know, in the past has not always had the best record of, of working with labor. Um, so that's something that was very important to the public power coalition um, in building those relationships. And I think moving forward, you know, it will show that we can have a true just transition that takes care of these workers um, who have been fossil fuel workers um, and in the future as we're as we're building out this this renewable energy. Now, what about consumers? Uh people might wonder, okay, we're going to go this new direction, but it, it, am I going to, you know, pay through the nose in, in my uh, uh, monthly uh, utility bills or are people going to get a better deal from this approach? Yeah, so part of the bill is as um, the New York Power Authority builds out these projects, um, there's guarantees that 
some of that energy is discounted for low income folks. Um, you know, we know right now our current fossil fuel system is incredibly expensive. Um, and, you know, most people cannot afford it right now. So making sure that that transition isn't hurting, you know, and not happening on the backs of New Yorkers was also very, very important to us. Um, and, you know, because these will now be state owned generation, um, you know, we own it. There's no profit incentive, right? You know, one of the things really driving up the cost of current energy is that it is owned by companies who, you know, are making money hand over fist, you know, polluting communities, polluting the planet. Um, and this has a chance to keep costs low because this is not the private market doing it. It's, it's for the public. Right. And when you talk about these private companies, I mean, their ultimate, uh, uh, responsibility is to deliver, uh, uh, dividends to their shareholders. So, I mean, that's part of what people are, are paying for every month in their utility bills, and, and, and that wouldn't be the case under this uh, new system, correct? Yeah, no. Um, it takes that, that profit um, incentive out of it. And, you know, some of these um, current producers, these fossil fuel guys, you know, have tried to create a lot of panic and saying, oh, this is going to be so expensive. But I think that's really just deflection because, you know, that's what the current system is. It's a very expensive system, and we can have something that's different. And I think that's, you know, one of the other things that's very exciting about this bill. You know, there are other climate bills that are going to be included in the budget, but this is the only one that's taking on, you know, this really unfortunate narrative that's kind of dominated our policy, which is like, oh, the free market can solve the climate crisis. Um, the free market can do this. Well, this is the first bill that's actually taking back energy production as a public good and, you know, saying there is a different way that will benefit New Yorkers and, you know, people across the country more. Right. And something that uh, struck me in the in the past uh, year or so uh, with the costliness of the system, which currently runs on um, a lot on natural gas, is how much prices shot up after the uh, war uh, began in the Ukraine with the Russian invasion there. And uh, the uh, U.S. producers began uh, shipping, uh, you know, large quantities of liquefied natural gas uh, to to Western Europe, which had been cut off from its Russian suppliers, and it created all this uh, market volatility and, and uh, you know helped uh, drive prices up uh, here uh, in New York and in the United States. And and it, there was nothing uh, people could do about that because that's just uh, you know the way the market was working. Yeah, fossil fuels are extremely volatile. And, you know, I moved to New York 10 years ago to start organizing against gas. And what everyone was saying is like, yeah, it's artificially cheap right now. They're going to build a bunch of export terminals, start shipping this gas overseas, and then jack up everybody's bill. And that's exactly what happened here. You know, they, they got so many more people hooked up on gas and then jacked up the bill. And renewables doesn't Thanks, have to be Thanks, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, really, there, there, there could be whole episodes on how Bloomberg greased the wheels, you know, for fracked gas in, in New York City and New York State. Um, but you know, if we own the renewable energy, that is a stable source of energy that the prices won't be jumping up all over the place. So people can consistently count on, you know, low, low affordable energy that's being produced by the wind and sun. And that's, you know, what we need, um, to, to run our city and our state. Right. So this all sounds great. Uh, uh, one, uh, I guess one concern I have is that uh, throughout uh, these negotiations, 
and going uh, back to when she came into office, uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, New York's governor, has really had uh, no interest uh, in uh, the Build uh, Public Renewables Act. She has basically had to be uh, dragged into uh, uh, supporting this. And uh, her uh, acting uh, head of NIPA, Justin Driscoll, has also uh, been very critical of the Build Public Renewables Act. So the people who are actually going to be in charge of uh, implementing this and overseeing it uh, seem, uh, if not outright hostile, you know, deeply uh, uninterested in, in this approach. So how are y'all going to deal with that? Yeah, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we can't just like rest our hats and be like, oh, great, we won this. We can we can go home now. You know, this is going to take more organizing to make sure it's implemented correctly. Um, there will be actually hearings on the plans that NIPA comes up with. So that will be one chance for the public to engage in this. And, you know, we're also going to be organizing to have the Senate actually reject Justin Driscoll's nomination um, to lead NIPA. You know, he's proven that he actually doesn't understand the potential that public power has to help New Yorkers across the state. Um, you know, he believes that we should be giving cheap energy to Amazon. Um, he's donated to a ton of Republicans. And so there's already been some senators, um, Senator Jar- Jabari Brisford, Julia Salazar, Kristen Gonzalez, who have, you know, publicly said that they would um, vote against his nomination. And we expect that to probably come up, you know, soon, either, you know, while the session is going on or towards the end of the session, um, because we think we really need to get somebody in there who understands what this is and is going to fight for for New Yorkers. Um, so we will be actively, you know, opposing his his nomination or his confirmation. He's already been nominated. Um, but right. it's not so we're going to keep a ear out for that name, uh, Justin Driscoll. Uh, people concerned about him being a, a roadblock to this uh, legislation actually really effectively being implemented. But I'd also like to just kind of journey back in time a little bit because a victory like this is the, uh, you know, a product of uh, years of uh, activism and organizing and, and these kind of victories don't come along every day. So we can probably learn a little bit from what you all have uh, been doing to uh, get things to this point. So I guess if you can take us back to 2019, I understand uh, sort of the first impetus for this came out of uh, uh, opposition uh, uh, to a, a, a proposed power plant in Astoria and that uh, led people to, want to go down a, a, a different path um, and launch this uh, initiative. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. And so there was a couple of things. There was, you know, the power plant um, proposed in Astoria. There was also a lot of DSA eco-socialist members who became parties in Con Edison's proposal to raise our rates, which three years later or four years later, they're, they're, they're doing again. Um, and, you know, kind of really looked at that system, our current energy system and, a dear comrade was like, well, there's this, you know, authority that exists, the New York Power Authority. They have like a ton of money. You know, why don't we start looking at at them and, and you know, reclaiming this public good? Um, and so it was, you know, members of eco-socialists that reached out to Assembly Member Carroll, you know, and helped write this bill. You know, this bill was written by, you know, socialists from New York City, which is another very exciting thing about it. And, you know, then a whole movement was built across the state of, you know, different DSA chapters, different environmental justice groups. Um, like you mentioned, like Sane Energy and 
technically I actually don't work for sane energy anymore, but I am still with, with public power NY. Um, and you know, we act, um, uh, Alliance for a Green Economy, Sixth Street Community Center, um, really built this, this powerful movement. And, you know, at that stage, a lot of getting the word out was just knocking on doors. Um, you know, that same summer, we started seeing a lot of blackouts. Um, where Con Edison was, you know, intentionally browning out black and brown communities. Um, so when things like that happened, people would start knocking on doors to talk to people about this. You know, I was organizing against the North Brooklyn pipeline and we were going along the pipeline route and knocking on doors into saying, Hey, did you know National Grid is, you know, putting a pipeline in your backyard? Also, we have this really exciting campaign for, for public power. Um, and that's how, you know, this is slowly built up and to be a massive, massive movement. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we got support from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman. You know, it's really grown to this this massive movement. Um, you know, there were so many different rallies along the way, trips to Albany to lobby legislators and actually whole campaigns, you know, elective campaigns. Um, like Sarah Hanna, who was a member of the Public Power New York Coalition. And when her assembly member did not fullheartedly get on board and support this bill, she ran against him and won. Um, so there was, you know, thousands of conversations happening in the Mid-Hudson Valley um, as people were knocking doors for Sarah Hanna. Um, so it's been a thing that we've, you know, slowly been building up, you know, conversation by conversation to build a power where, you know, Governor Hochul felt like she had to do something on this. And I think the other thing that really helped us was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it made a lot of money available for these projects to happen. And so it was like, okay, you're facing this massive movement and then you're leaving, you know, a billion plus dollars of federal funding on the table. Like, okay, I think we're going to finally have to, have to move on this. Um, and then we fought very hard throughout this entire budget process to make sure that a strong bill passed. Um, you know, we want to make sure it's implemented in the right way. You know, this is only going to be a model for the whole country, you know, if we implement these these pieces like the labor, the mandate to build um, in, you know, the coming years. Right. And I, I, I think it's also extraordinary. I mean, we know how dysfunctional our political system can be, both uh, certainly in Washington, D.C., but often uh, in Albany as well with our state government. Uh, that you all uh, had both enough faith in the system to uh, engage with it, but also uh, enough uh, savvy to figure out uh, uh, how to uh, build an effective coalition that that couldn't uh, ultimately be uh, uh, defeated. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very hard to have faith that you can. And, you know, I think we also recognized at some point during this, you know, four year fight was like, okay, we're actually going to have to build more power for us to have faith that we can influence this system. So I think, you know, electing more people um, to Albany who deeply, deeply care about this issue was a really important part of building that power, um, you know, just constantly doing rallies, constantly doing town halls and reaching out to people about this. Um, you know, it was a huge, huge part of that. And then once we've got those elected officials into Albany, you know, having socialists who are inside, who can let us know really what's going on, um, who can let us know what 
the real levers of power are in New York has been a huge part of that. You know, I don't know if we could have passed this bill um, if we didn't have the, the you know, a socialist senators and assembly members that we that we have in the legislature right now. I, it's, it would have been very difficult, especially with, with this budget process. Cause like I mentioned, you know, so much of it is happening behind the scenes. You really don't like know what's happening unless somebody tells you what's, what's happening on the inside. Um, which makes it very hard to then, you know, mobilize a base. Um, when nobody has any idea what it is. And now you've, you know, told people for the fifth time, like, Oh, this is our last day to influence the budget. Um, so, yeah, it's been a very slow. And I mean, one thing also I will say about this coalition that is very, very impressive um, and I think kind of unprecedented is the amount of people who have been involved that are just volunteers. Um, you know, there are some organizations in um, the Public Power Coalition like Sane Energy. But, you know, when I worked for Sane Energy, some points we were like two people that were employees and we were also fighting a pipeline. So there was never like one group with a ton of staff that was just focused on public power. So much of this has been DSA volunteers, you know, like literally writing the bill, talking to media, you know, doing the actual work to move this forward while also having a completely different day job. Um, and, you know, so we have seen some really other big wins, but I don't know if we've ever seen a win like this that's mostly been led by volunteer grassroots organizing. Um, and so hopefully, too, that means that this can be a model for other places. You know, we didn't have tons of money behind us. We didn't have, you know, tons of staff, um, you know, a whole team of insider lobbyists fighting for this bill. It really was New Yorkers doing it. And I think that makes the victory, you know, much, much sweeter. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. But uh, Lee Zishi from Public Power New York, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the story of your big victory with uh, Public Power here in New York. Thanks so much for having me. And, yeah, thanks to everybody who who made it happen. Okay. So um, we're going to go to our first break here, and we're going to hear uh, some voices uh, from uh, Mayday, uh, Independence uh, Amba Gagarian uh, was at – Union Square, along with Independence Lula McDonald, talking to uh, participants in the uh, May Day uh, uh, protest yesterday, celebrating International Workers' Day. So we're going to hear uh, some a little bit of that, and then we'll be back uh, with uh, the rest of the show. What's today? What's Is that the union train is coming, coming? Union train is coming. Is that the union train is coming, coming? Get on board, get on board. Thank y'all, love y'all, and bless. There might we gotta roll the union on. Cause giant corporations shake when workers rise up and unite. We gotta roll the union on.
crisis desastrosa, macabra a nivel mundial del capitalismo. Pero lo que no estamos diciendo es que esta crisis actual del capitalismo no tiene una solución, no tiene una salida. El neoliberalismo se jodió. El capitalismo solo puede ser resuelto con un levantamiento popular de todos los que están afectados por la crisis a nivel mundial. And those were some of the voices of uh, Mayday from yesterday at Union Square, compiled by uh, my colleagues uh, Amir Gagarian and Lula McDonald. And um, there is uh, also uh, other activities happening on Mayday yesterday, including uh, a number of uh, Starbucks baristas from around the New York City region who marched on the bus. They marched uh, to Starbucks uh, regional uh, headquarters over near uh, uh, Penn Station and one of the big office towers over there. And, uh, the independent Sue Brisk was on hand for that and got some, uh, really interesting footage of the, of the workers confronting, uh, management and demanding to be heard and, and to be respected. So far, uh, Starbucks has really, uh, refused to negotiate in good faith, uh, with the workers who've, uh, unionized there. There's, uh, over 300 stores nationwide that have unionized, more than a dozen here in the New York City region. And anyway, uh, let's listen uh, to some of that clip from uh, Mayday as well. We are partners! Who are we? We are partners! Who are we? We are partners! Our union is fighting for, one, the right to organize through a fair process without interference, intimidation, or reprisal. A strong foundation of rights including just cause and respect for seniority. Health and safety with a commitment to racial justice, zero tolerance of sexual harassment, and a platform to proactively resolve safety issues. Base wage for all workers of at least $20 per hour, annual raises of 5% plus a cost of living adjustment and a bonus of $2,000 for workers on their 10-year anniversary of employment. We're your coworkers for real, and y'all harass us and bother us and humiliate us. Y'all break the federal law every day. Y'all harass us every day. Y'all don't have anything to say right now for real? You have people all around here to stand up for what's right for their workers, and you're just going to sit here, and you're not going to do anything about it. We understand. We listen. We hear you. That's not solving our issue. A new uh, respect. It's earned, and you are not earning our respect at all. You won't have a company without us. It's also your breaking the federal law. Why are you going to waste so much money on union busting? What's the point of it? Just come and negotiate. Get what is the, the, what, the way you set up our hours? We can't even get second like jobs. Million, like There's people in school. We're trying spend. to survive out here, and you're over here sitting on your nice salary, right? You're not going to help us. Yeah. 20 hours minimum for benefits, for schooling, for anything? Really? I just want to give y'all this. No, thank you. You can say no thank you all you like, but we already know the truth, and soon enough, everybody's gonna know the truth. Free mental health for how long? 
sign up. Do you know what we deal with in the stores on a regular We got customers harassing us sexually, physically, throwing coffee at us. I have been sexually harassed in this, with this company by workers, by customers. You guys have been harassed. me. Filing complaint after complaint and nothing's done. Then you keep... Okay, that uh, was uh, Starbucks uh, baristas yesterday uh, confronting uh, management at Starbucks regional headquarters in New York City. The baristas were from stores in New York City, Long Island, and New Jersey. And uh, as I mentioned before, they uh, have not been able to have uh, serious uh, bargaining uh, sessions with Starbucks management, despite unionizing in some cases over a year ago. So that was uh, compiled by the independent Sue Brisk. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, uh, John Tarleton. My co-host, Amba Gagarian, is out today. Uh, so uh, we have uh, some more uh, uh, excellent guests in the coming up in the second half of our show, uh, but want to ask you, if you can, please support this station. Please support WBAI 99.5 FM, community radio, listener-sponsored community radio that's been on the air here in New York for 63 years. That's only been possible because of the support of our listeners, especially WBAI buddies, people who give uh, $10 per month or more. Really, uh, the financial bedrock of the station that uh, give it uh, some financial stability uh, from one month to the next. And uh, whether you're a WBAI buddy or you decide to make, uh, you know, a, a generous one-time contribution, you help keep this station on the air. You can call two one two two zero nine two nine five zero or go to give number two. WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 212-209-2950 or give number two WBAI.org. You make it possible for us to bring uh, the, the voices that you hear on the Independent News Hour every week. Uh, you, you heard from uh, uh, Lee Zishi, uh, uh, eco-socialist and environmental organizer that was a part of the incredible statewide coalition of people that won the historic legislation uh, to bring public uh, power uh, to New York in a, in a big way. Um, you heard the voices of the Starbucks uh, baristas there. Uh, we're going to hear uh, more about uh, uh, criminal justice and the ongoing struggle to roll back our completely insane mass incarceration system uh, here in New York uh, from our upcoming guests. But it all starts with you, the listener, supporting the station we don't have big uh, corporate benefactors or, uh, you know, deep-pocketed investors. We have you, our listener, calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give number 2 WBAI.org and pulling out the plastic and making the, the contribution or, even better, signing up to be a WBAI buddy. When you do, you get all sorts of uh, excellent uh, uh, benefits uh, that, that come with that, uh, membership. Uh, so it's 212-209-2950. I know from, uh, you know, running the independent, uh, day to day, I mean, we are in a, a similar situation, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, hustling to, uh, pay the bills. So I have a lot of respect for WBAI and its community of supporters. Uh, but it, 
you know, 63 years is pretty amazing, but to get to six, number 64, you're going to take that continued support. And I mean, that money goes for like the most fundamental things. It helps keep the transmitter and the antenna up on top of four times square, the skyscraper right in the middle of Manhattan where that uh, beams the WBAI signal across the greater New York City region. Uh, you know, it, it helps pay for like that. I mean, the incredibly small staff at WBAI that keeps the station on the air. So when you give to WBAI, it's going for the basics and there's no, no, uh, frills, no luxuries. 212-209-2950 support this amazing community radio station. And, uh, with that, I want to uh, move on uh, to our next guest. Um, we're going to talk in a minute with the independence, uh, uh, Ted Ham, our criminal justice correspondent. Uh, unfortunately, while there is uh, some good news coming out of Albany uh, with the uh, renewable energy, also the MTA got a boost in uh, funding that was uh, much needed. Uh, there was some real step backs uh, on criminal justice reform. Uh, Governor Hochul uh, really fought an all-out effort to uh, try to roll back some of the historic bail reform legislation from 2019, and uh, Ted's been following that. And, uh, and the district attorneys, uh, who've been, uh, playing a, a large role in, in, in that as well. Uh, Ted, welcome back to WBAI radio. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. So, uh, can you sum up for us, uh, what, uh, has, uh, come out of all these, uh, negotiations and back and forth around, uh, criminal justice reform, around bail reform and, and as well as discovery reform, these, uh, historic advances that were approved four years ago that have been under attack almost uh, constantly since then. Right. Well, there was an attack on discovery reform that was dropped last late last week. So that at least did not go forward, but the bail, the rollbacks of bail reform uh, proposed by Hochul have apparently are on their way to a passage. It's, it's not a done deal yet. Um, but, uh, they also, the changes are more substantial than first thought. So initially what she was proposing, what people understood her to be proposing was removing the, uh, what's called the least restrictive means of, um, a, a, a defendant returning to court, which, in, um, non-bail eligible offenses. So, um that was basically meaning no 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 bail and um and, and so forth that the then that's what they were going to roll back but now um they've removed that least restrictive standard to bail eligible offenses um so uh that or maybe i'm saying it the other way around but in any case it what it, what it basically means is that um this least restrictive standard is is coming out and now judges have full discretion to hold someone based on what they view to be the seriousness of the crime as they perceive it or um the the the, 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 the defendant's habitual nature of, of repeat offenses and so forth and basically it's going to be used to hold more people at rikers who can't afford to pay bail um, on these low-level offenses. So it's basically re- re- totally undermining the um, intent of bail reform as passed in, in 2019 and, and only took effect in 2020. Right. And, and, um, and can, can you talk a little bit more uh, about how prosecutors have used the combination of 
of this system of wealth-based uh, detention and, and uh, their ability to manipulate the discovery process uh, where they have to uh, divulge whatever evidence they have of someone's crime. Uh, how In the past, they used the two in concert to um, uh, really put uh, criminal defendants who were convicted of nothing uh, in impossible situations. So that's what gave rise to the discovery for reform that was also passed in 2019 that um, basically brought New York up to speed with the rest of states across the country, Texas included, uh, that uh, making sure that defense, the, the defense attorneys knew what prosecutors had in their case file in terms of the evidence they were going to bring against the defendant. Uh, so they, when, when they were talking about last week with, uh, or in the last couple of weeks with potentially rolling that back, it was a way to, uh, allow for, um, prosecutors to withhold some of that evidence and make the defense have to sort of guess what was in their file. Uh, and so on. So that didn't happen, but, uh, basically when they're increasing the number of people who are going to Rikers and being held there on bail, you're going to increase the number of people who do, um, plead guilty just to get out of the situation, you know, a, a hellish situation there at Rikers. So, um, right. that's sort of, it's a return to that coercive use of bail. Um, so it's not just um, to hold someone to, to, to detain them. It's also to get them to to plead out to resolve the case. So that, that, that that's which is what the DA's offices. That's how they resolve ninety seven to ninety nine percent of their cases, like, something like that. Um, so right, and and, and Governor Hochul made a comment the other day, kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag, where she talked about uh, how uh, uh, some of these. Uh, uh, cases that get in the media, especially, uh, it seems in the New York Post, uh, you know, shock the conscience of, of people. And, and, and she found that unacceptable. But just the way, uh, in particular, the New York Post, uh, this very, uh, right wing, uh, tabloid is, has really sort of been able to take over the conversation about, uh, criminal justice policy. Sure. We saw that in the governor's race with Lee Zeldin. We saw it in the 2021 mayor's race with, with Eric Adams getting, gaining the support of the post, uh, as well. And so now they're driving this storyline or the, the, the narrative that bail reform is responsible for the spikes in crime we've seen, uh, through the pandemic and the aftermath. Um, crime's now, uh, on the d- decline, but that, of course, doesn't fit the, doesn't fit the narrative. But, um, yeah, so there, she, Holkel's made that statement and was sort of uh as you say letting the cat out of the bag or um saying the quiet part on the loud out loud that you know then this is what judges see as well right they don't want to be the judge on the cover of the new york post who let someone go um without bail who then commits a serious crime and so on you know and then the new york post of course they drive the local news cycle, TV, local TV news and so on. So it just blows, blows up exponentially. Um, and they, you know, so that's, that's what they're all thinking. But then the whole idea of giving judges so much leeway is going to lead to wildly uneven, even more wildly uneven patterns that already exist among how the judge, in terms of how the judges, um, hand out bail and what, what, what extent what degree of bail they're asking for and so on. 
uh, that already is a, there's a, uh, significant variations among between the judges who do that, and now it's going to give perpetuate that even more so. So it's really going to come down to wh- which defendant has the good luck or bad luck to appear before a certain judge, and what the mood the judge's mood that day might be, uh, and so on. So you know, there's this uh, in, in, in innumerable number of variables that. Um, come into play. So rather than creating right. a, a rational, coherent system like they were doing with bail reform, now they're just sort of leading, leaving it up to individual whims, essentially. Right. And and, and before we uh, bring our next guest uh, into the conversation, uh, how large a role did uh, district attorneys play in pressuring uh, for these uh, uh, rollbacks of bail reform, including the district attorneys in the five boroughs of New York City. Being on board, pushing varying degrees of it, um, the district attorney's association and so on uh, has been on board with the, these changes. And again, you know, they, they're going to uh, claim it's a public safety issue, but really when you're slowing down their, um, ability to coerce these pleas, then that just um, messes up their um, procedures, right? So that, so they, they're upset. They, they can claim on the one hand that, yes, it is a matter of public safety, but really the way they operate is to uh, get pleas. Um, and if by putting pe- more people at Rikers, you're going to get them to plead out. Uh, that's all. That's fine by them. Right. And, uh, uh, understand one of the district attorneys that really uh, led the charge and, and bent uh, Kathy Hochul's ear uh, was Br- Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark. Uh, you've written some about that, and you also recently wrote about uh, uh, someone who's uh, challenging Darcel Clark in the uh, Democratic primary uh, for DA in the Bronx uh, uh, this year, and that's uh, uh, Tess Cohen. She's both a former uh, prosecutor and a uh, defense attorney lives in the Bronx, and uh, uh, she's uh, also here to join us today. Uh, Tess, welcome to ninety nine point five FM. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, so uh, what what do you make of the of these uh, bail uh, reform rollbacks that appear to be coming out of Albany, uh, and uh, and uh, of Darcel Clark's role in uh, helping instigate that? So I find it very frustrating. I think that discovery reform and bail reform has become a convenient scapegoat for our uh, normal system, the sort of status quo, to actually create lasting public safety. And so rather than the people in power right now looking to see what they can actually do to make communities safer, they are using bail and discovery reform as sort of a false straw man as to what the problem is and why crime briefly went up and is now going back down, ignoring, of course, the fact that the pandemic was a deeply destabilizing event. And it is what certainly actually resulted in that spike that, again, is going down in crime. Um, And so the, the problem with bail is that, you know, we can see what happens when someone's released and we can't see what happens so easily when someone is held at Rikers. And what happens when someone is held at Rikers is we destabilize their lives. We make them sicker. They don't get medical care. They don't get mental health care. If they're on medication, they're going to be off it. 
they lose their jobs, they lose their children, they lose their housing. And as a result, when they are ultimately released, we have taken all of the reasons that a person commits a crime in the first place and we make them worse. But we don't see that side of the conversation in the New York Post. New York Post doesn't cover is, you know, the person who loses their job at Rikers and then is forced to continue to commit petty larceny. Um, and on the discovery side, it's, we, we, we have finally in New York brought ourselves to where the rest of the country already is that defendants shouldn't have to wait more than six months to see the basic evidence against them. And now prosecutors are trying to roll back our attempts to make sure that people get their evidence in a timely manner. And let's be very clear, like cases are not being dismissed in New York unless it takes more than 90 days for misdemeanors and six months for felonies for prosecutors to get all the evidence over. That is plenty of time to do that. And DA Clark has been the biggest push against discovery reform and rolling it back because she has failed to implement it successfully in her office. And she's blaming the law when what should be really happening is she should be working to bring her office into compliance, not take people's rights away. Right. Because what we're talking about here fundamentally is that there is a constitutional right, the Sixth Amendment, to a fair and speedy trial. And that that seems to elude uh, uh, many of our prosecutors. Uh, but uh, would you like to make, uh, I guess, your uh, elevator pitch for why uh, you think you would be a better district attorney uh, for the Bronx than uh, the current incumbent? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked on all sides of the criminal justice system. As, as you mentioned before, I worked as a prosecutor. I specialized in prosecuting doctors who illegally prescribed oxycodone and sort of precipitated the opioid crisis we're still in. Um, I now do criminal defense work. I also represent victims of sexual assault, especially women who've been assaulted by prison guards. Um, And I represent those who are wrongfully convicted. So I've seen the good, the bad, and the really, really ugly of the criminal justice system. And I know that there's a much better way to be doing things than we are in the Bronx. In the Bronx, we're failing on all sides. On the one hand, we don't have reforms that have been proven to work to keep people out of prison while also addressing the reasons why people commit crimes. Robust mental health courts, alternative to incarceration courts, community-based programming that help people rather than further destabilizing and make us all safer in the process. On the flip side, we have terrible conviction rates for the crimes that matter most. Homicides, uh, sexual assaults, attempted murders, hate crimes. Uh, we don't prosecute you know, landlords and employers who break the laws here. Everything that's really, really harmful isn't being successfully done. There was a recent article that came out that said, only 26% of sexual assault in the Bronx that the DA chooses to prosecute at all result in conviction. So that means three out of four cases, there is no conviction for sexual assault. And that's the small number of cases the DA actually decides to move forward on in the first place, which is less than all the other boroughs does. Um, and then the third is Rikers Island. The Bronx District Attorney has exclusive jurisdiction over, of the five DAs over Rikers Island. Whoever is the DA of the Bronx should be looking to decarcerate and should be looking to investigate the conditions that are happening there and to make people aware of the terrible harms that are happening at Rikers and what we need to do to close it. Um, but the current DA's biggest campaign contributor is the union that represents Rikers guards. And she is not using her power to really figure out what is happening there and where appropriate hold people responsible for the fact that in the last two years, 36 people died in New York City jails. So there's all sorts of things I can and will do better to improve the criminal justice system on all sides in the Bronx. And, and for people who are, are deeply skeptical that there's that it's possible to have a progressive prosecutor. I mean, it's been tried in, in other 
cities with uh, mixed results. Uh, how do you deal? How would you deal with that tension of, of of being ultimately the top prosecutor in Bronx County if you won your race, while trying to at the same time uh, uh, sort of unravel the very, the system that you would be presiding over? Yeah, so I mean, there's, you can never have a perfect system when you're part of a flawed system, right? I mean, ultimately, it's it's a matter of harm reduction, and it's a matter of working towards a better system and helping the people that we can't in the moment right now within a flawed structure. Like people always need to be working on both sides, in my view. They have to be working inside the system to improve and outside the system to, to, to dismantle it. And I'm one of the internal people. Um, and I see my job is to sh- shrink the footprint of the criminal justice system at every stage, to have less people coming into the system at all, to have less people getting convicted of crimes. I mean, one thing we don't talk about enough is convictions. Um, you know, uh, I think it's a single misdemeanor conviction drops the lifetime earnings of someone 17 percent. And the D.A. has control over who gets convicted of a crime and who doesn't. Right. And so we can purposefully reduce that number and then reduce the number of people who are incarcerated and so on and so forth. And so I think I have a very structured view of how we're going to do that at every single stage that's helped by the fact that I've worked as a prosecutor and I've often worked on the other side and have seen um, line prosecutors in, um, in the city even sort of undermining the stated goals of more progressive TAs that come into power. And so I know how to work within that system. Like I, I'm a big believer in um, enforcing policy through bureaucracy. Make it so that you have to fill out 100 forms if you want to have someone held in on bail, right? And then very few people are going to do it as a result. So those are the kind of things that you need to think about. And so I really think I have the experience to do it. And, um, you know, people want to see... If you're really wonky and you want to see what my beliefs are about how we can better the system, I wrote, along with a few other people, this very long report with the New York City Bar Association's Mass Incarceration Task Force that looks like all of the things that we need to do to change the system. And it's not just for me what I can do in the office, but it's advocating for change with the legislature, not being the DA who says roll back the discovery reform, being the DA that says no, discovery reform is good. No, bail reform is good. Yes, we need to shorten sentences. Yes, we need to get rid of mandatory minimums. Yes, we need to provide services on reentry. We need to reform prisons. So, you know, you can advocate for change while still within the DA's office. Right. And we'll have to go here in a minute. Uh, Now, you moved to the Bronx about a decade ago. Uh, You know, how well do you feel like you understand the borough that you would be representing it's overwhelmingly uh, people of color you're white you've been there about 10 years uh how would you respond to that uh concern well i mean i have lived we just here have long like 30 enough. seconds unfortunately okay. i'll do it real fast i've lived here long enough to see the problems you know i moved in i live right by the courthouse right by yankee stadium i'm in a very um you know i'm right in the middle of the bronx know my neighbors really well the president of the Tense Association of my uh, rent stabilized building. Like I've spent a lot of time talking to folks in the Bronx and I'm confident that everyone here wants change and that I can bring the change that people want. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there at uh, Tess Cohen uh, running in the democratic primary for Bronx district attorney. Thank you for joining us on WBAI this evening. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
And also thanks to Ted Ham for joining us uh, for this report as well. And uh, that wraps it up for today. I want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, also uh, Amba Gagarian, uh, uh, Sue Brisk, and uh, Lula McDonald. And uh, we'll exit with uh, some, um, some music here. Two-thirds a person Breakings and beatings And suffering and worsens Black human packages Tied up in strings Black rage can come from all These kinds of things Black rage is founded on Blatant denial Squeeze economics Subsistence survival Deafening silence And social control Black rage is found in all wounds in the soul. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of things, and then I don't fear so bad. Thank you.